0: Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the reason any single thing sounds the way that it does in hard music today, frankly in music today, a guitar player that changed the game not only once with the Jesus Lizard, but again when he helped to form the supergroup Tomahawk, it is my absolute honor to introduce Dwayne Dennison. Dwayne, how are things?
1: I'm great, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, amazing introduction. But uh, thank you for having me. Nice being here. Just hanging out on a Thursday night on my back porch in Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Is is the weather nice down there?
1: Um, It's hot and muggy, and it's been raining on and off today, which I don't mind. Um, Too much bright sunlight kind of wears me out. Um, So I'll take an overcast day when I can get it.
0: Well, what were the initial inspirations that made you pick up the guitar, and why did you decide upon Eastern Michigan University to further that training?
1: Uh, um, well, I was born and raised in Michigan, and I was born in Ann Arbor, and I grew up in the Detroit area, and that was one of the only schools that, you know, I, I figured I needed a degree in something, and I wanted to learn more about music, and they had a guitar program. So I got in that way. Um, Um, but as far as like going all the way back to started, well, my parents were both, I guess you could say amateur musicians and there was a piano in the house and they both played and played and sang around the piano. And then later a guitar came in the house through my older sister and, um, you know, I just sort of appropriated it over time and one thing led to another and I wanted to rock out, you know, my initial, um, impulses, an initial reason was probably the same as most guys. I just wanted to show off. I wanted to make noise and show off and, uh, you know, have everything that came with it, you know, and whether that meant the built-in social aspect or girls and, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. (laughs) Um, Maybe not in that order, but but then as over time, my um, motives became more musical, you know, as I learned more and became more proficient and listened more, I thought at some point I maybe I actually did have something to say and wanted to say it, and that was having a message to get out there and to be what was driving me and made me want to uh, put myself through the ringer just in order to do that. And um, I'm, I guess you could say, I'm still doing it in a way, still trying to put things out there and. It's one the flagpole, see who salutes. So, uh, yeah, I guess that, that would sum it up.
0: Did Cargo Cult start after university, or how did that come to be?
1: Um, I had graduated and moved down to Austin, Texas in the mid-'80s, 1984 to be exact. And um, <clears throat> that was when, to me, that was, I, I was really into, well, the American Independence and North American independency. Um, there were labels going like, well, in the beginning, it seemed like it was SST and Homestead. And then later, you know, Touch and Go and, oh, I don't know, Rabbit Cat and, and um, things like that. Drag City and all the other ones. Sub Pop, of course. Um, so there was a real opportunity there for someone who wanted to play loud, aggressive music that was dissonant, abrasive, all that, and get it out there. And um, that was after I graduated from college and moved to Texas. Um, Michigan, the economy in the 80s was terrible. And, you know, both my parents lost their jobs. Um, the weather, you know, the weather, it's like Canada, it's cold half the year. Um, and the and the economic climate was miserable. And I just, it just seemed like, I had friends down in Texas too. And they're like, dude, come down here. You'll, uh, you could live outside if you had to. And... Uh, the music scene's great. The economy's great. And um, oh, they were right. I mean, I got a job the first week I was there. And I was playing in two bands within a year. I, had a, I told my sister, I said, my goal is to have an album out within a year. And it took about a year and a half. So I was a little bit off. But um, there was a band down there that was very popular called The Big Boys, and they had broken up by almost the day I got there. And the, the singer of Cargo Cult was a guy, Randy Biscuit Turner, who was the singer of the big boys and, and um kind of helped us get attention and then through that i met the guys in scratch acid two of whom david Yao and david sims who would, would later form a band with me called the jesus lizard it's hard to say jesus lizard
0: <laughs> well i asked Yao about this and he said to ask you so the jesus lizard what were some of the yeah. early discussions about <clears throat> excuse me sorry that you all wanted the direction of the sound to go. Were you trying to expand upon the sounds that you were learning about in school? Or did you try to break those rules, a lot like most filmmakers do when they leave film schools?
1: I, when I left school, I couldn't get away from it fast enough. Um, I, I mean, I used ideas and things that I had, I guess, sort of picked up a little bit here and there in school, a lot of that stuff I learned on my own and school was there just to kind of verify it and approve it and get the stamp and get the diploma to show, yes, I know these things. Um, but the stuff we're doing, we never talked about it. We just started, you know, throwing ideas around and, you know, jamming together, making, excuse me, making practice tapes, probably like what filmmakers do. And you just kind of wing it and just kind of learn as you go, make things up as you go. Um, of it, too, David, Yow, David Sims, the bassist, and I, it was a good year or so when before the band started. Well, actually, let me start over. We started in Texas, actually, and then David Yao and David Sims moved to Chicago play uh, up there, and I came up about a year and a half later. So in that time, I was writing and doing very simple home recordings, as was David Sims, and we would exchange them in those days in the mail. You would make cassettes and send them to each other. So by the time we all got back together up there and we recruited Mac, we had, you know, at least an album's album or two's worth of material almost ready to go. We just had to rehearse it and then season it with live performances. So, um, you know, like the old saying, you plan your work and you work your plan.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of the live performances, was there ever a discussion about how the live shows were going to look? Or did they just kind of come naturally to you when you stepped out on stage? They
1: just happened. We didn't have time to think about that. And in those days, especially when we're touring, you've got four guys in a van. We didn't have a trailer. We didn't want to pull a trailer because it's a hassle. Parking and it can be difficult to drive. So think about that. Four guys in a van. We didn't even have enough of a budget or any extra people You know, people to hump gear or guitar tech? What is that? Um, Or a sound man. We just traveled. And then, so we had to keep it simple and keep it as stripped down as possible. And David Yao had already been a fairly um, extroverted front man, shall we say. (laughs) And uh, everything else just kind of fell into place. Um, We didn't really have props or special lights or anything like that. Um, still don't really. It was just kind of um, that was part of the presentation, really, of that era. It was just independent bands. You, the band and the gear was the show. That's the show. Um, it was almost a reaction to the sort of overblown, sort of extravagant stadium extravaganzas, where half the we didn't want to do audience participation numbers. We didn't want to do, you know a synchronized set where you have all these props and special effects timed at exactly the right thing and this this really cheesy sort of thing was not what it was about at that time. And I don't mind a certain showmanship from people, from other people. If it's well done and thought out and interesting, yeah, of course. Um, I wouldn't mind doing more of it myself. But um, we just couldn't do it. Though it's funny, we were all big film fans and fans of various directors um, and we all, and David Yah was a visual artist, and we all had interests in that. David's favorite director, uh, oh God, I just forgot his name, you know, the Clockwork Orange and all those.
0: Stanley Kubrick.
1: Stanley Kubrick, right. Um, I saw Werner Herzog speak at the University of Michigan back in the late 70s, because they were showing his films, and he showed up and, and spoke. Um, that was a treat. I hardly—I was so young, I hardly knew who it was. And then it turned out to be, you know, Warner Herzog. He, had some, he said something I still remember to this day. Uh, he was taking questions from the very earnest, various um, University of Michigan film students. And one of them said, what does the birds symbolize in that one scene? He was like, birds are nothing. Birds are birds. <laughs> and I thought that was usually Germans. Everything symbolizes something. But, uh, anyway.
0: Well, what did you think the first time Yao got naked on stage?
1: Oh, God, probably the first show. I don't know. I don't remember. We played, in the initial run, from 89 to 99, we played over 900 shows. And then we started playing again in 2009. Since then, have played on and off over the years. Maybe another 100 or so shows. So over 1,000 shows. Um... Sometimes it wasn't even intentional. Sometimes he, you know, he would have his shirt off and just jeans and boots you know, a la Eddie Pop, but his clothes would get ripped or pulled off by the crowd and things like that, and other times it was sort of deliberate accidents and things like that. Sometimes he would just change clothes on stage into other things that people would throw out there and, like, just, oh, I think I'll put these shorts on that somebody threw in Australia. And it's funny, America... He's gotten in trouble for it here, but in other countries like Australia, Italy, whatever, they just laugh. It's just good fun. It's just, it's more of a clownish sort of opera buffa thing or just like a funny thing. It's not as some dirty, perverted thing because it's, it's not how it's meant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway.
0: Well, we're going to get to those reunion tours in a little bit. But lots can argue that Steve Albini captured the band in the studio at their most raw. Do you think that he helped capture the best of you? Or was there another engineer that you think got it right? I think
1: it kind of went both ways. I thought that, Steve, I like the way um, goat sounds. And um, I think that that was one where everything worked together. The sparseness of the music, the room sound that he gets. Very straightforward sort of thing. I thought that's where it all really worked. Um But I like the later ones too. I like um, the Gregarious Richardson, who was a Canadian, by the way, uh, the first major label one. Um, so I don't know. Um, as far as dream producers from back in that day, oh, I don't know. Steve Lillywhite would have been fun, um, but you never know. You never know. Um, it depends on the material and what the frame with mine, people are in at the time as well. Like we did a session with John Cale that by all reasoning should have been out of this world. And it just really wasn't, um, just, the uh, what the, um, chemistry and whatnot just wasn't happening. And, um, so you, you just can't tell.
0: Looking back on the albums now, which one do you think is the closest that you were striving for as a band?
1: For me at the time, the one that probably sounded the most like what we really sounded like was Goat, like I, the one I mentioned, um, for the same reasons. You know, there was a certain hollowness and a clarity and a simplicity to it that I liked. But, uh, and then we've evolved, too. We've become heavier and dirtier over time, and the world of sound has changed a lot since then, too. Um, so, that's yeah, I'll just say that one.
0: What was the first reunion tour of the Jesus Lizard like? Did it feel better than the first time around? And did you notice that you were fixing any mistakes that you felt you had the first time around?
1: Well, when you, with us, being able to do that you know, in 2009, all those years later, um, it, it's a different vibe. Um, because in a way, we had kind of, we had already done it. We had accomplished something, and now we were revisiting it and kind of recreating it. And so, in a way, it was it's, it's just different um, there wasn't there what pressure wasn't there on the one hand there was pressure we always considered ourselves to be a really good live band and we had to deliver. We had to show that we could still do it and I, I feel like we did um, but at the same time we we were older and relatively so we're we're adults now I wouldn't say completely settled, but definitely at a point in our lives where we weren't, none of us were 100% dependent on that to make our lives complete or to make a living at it, put it that way. We all had other things going on, um, well, I, you know, musically or otherwise. So it was, it was kind of nice to be able to do it, still have big crowds, still have ex- people who were excited and very happy to see us and able to get up and play. It was just great. It was like a second childhood, <laughs> really wonderful.
0: Well, now the third coming of the Jesus Lizard, in my opinion, is where you all reach perfection. I was at that cannery show in Nashville. It was otherworldly seeing you guys this time around. How did you feel about the most recent set of shows?
1: I thought they were great. I thought, um, there was that. And we've actually played, again, since then in Nashville, we played uh, Marathon Music Works. Mm -hmm. Um, and then played a couple shows, including a New York show just this last New Year's Eve. Um. But yeah, it's it's just been very gratifying, and, and we're sort of humbled that a there's still an audience for us, that people will still come and see us once in a while at least, and that we can still do it. We're all we're all still alive for one thing. We're all in decent health and in good physical, mental condition, and we all get along. Um, it's kind of rare as I as I get older and look around and check out other bands doing kind of their reunion or get-together things, to be able to check all those boxes is pretty rare. Um, You know, even bands, there's usually somebody that physically isn't together or whatever, and then there's a lot of times it's pretty rare when they still all get along. Chances are later in their lives they've had legal proceedings and all kinds of crap like that come and go and kind of uh, affects the way you feel about each other. But um, and we had none of that baggage going into this. We all we talk regularly. We, you know, we've all stayed in touch and we're still friends. And we we enjoy just hanging out, whether we're playing or not. And um, that's pretty rare too.
0: Well, I have to ask: Can we expect anything more from the Jesus Lizard in the future?
1: Um. Well, you never know, Robert. You <laughs> never know. You <laughs> Never say never. You can't say never. You know uh, it takes.
0: I was expecting that answer.
1: It takes teamwork to make the dream work, so we'll just have to see.
0: You worked around ministry and Paul Barker a lot in your career. Did the USSA album and your time with Paul as a partner just kind of happen with ease, or was this a project you toyed with for a long period of time?
1: Um, that came together pretty early. We were both um, at a point where the things that we had been doing weren't really happening, and I tend to think that Paul, like me, is the kind of person who's always working on something and always writing something. So um, finding common ground and trying to do something, um, what really wasn't that hard, Um, I did another thing with someone else um, that also started with the letter U, and it was called The Ensemble with Alexander Hacke from Wanksters End in Neubauten and Brian Kosser, who was played with the Silver Jews here. And that's a a similar thing, like someone who I'd known for a while and liked what they did, and we um, had time and worked on some stuff and made it happen. Those were both—they both kind of turned out to be one-offs. They weren't terribly successful. Um, But, you know, that's all relative.
0: Well, the Dennis and Kimball trio started at the height of the Jesus Lizard. Was this a project that you thought would stop after the initial soundtrack to Walls in the City, Or was it always looked upon as something that would continue for years? I think, well,
1: it it started, obviously, just to do that soundtrack, but then we found that we liked playing um, that sort of music, that sort of, what, experimental lounge music, Mm -hmm. um, is what I'd call it now. Um, Because it was such a relief, once again, it was so different from what we both were doing. You know, Jim was playing in the Laughing Hyenas, and it was nice to be able to play something where it just wasn't, quite as physically demanding or intense. You know, we could get up and play. It wasn't nearly as loud. It wasn't nearly as physically, um, I don't know, uh, energy depleting. It didn't take as much equipment. And there was only two people we could set up anywhere and just play and sort of improvise and play with finesse and atmosphere. And, And that's so it was kind of a nice outlet for that.
0: Is soundtrack work something you'd like to do more of?
1: At this point, not really. Um, I mean, I do little background music things for, oh, I don't know, like library, uh, li- library videos, online videos and things like that. But um, no, I think I'm past. I-, I like what I'm doing now. I like being able to play Divide Time between Tomahawk and the Jesus Lizard. And uh, I think my time to do that has come and gone. Um, I would have liked to, but... I quickly saw that I didn't have the technical means, like a home studio that's extremely high tech. I, I never had that. I still don't. And, you know, a foot in the door in, in the like motion picture industry. And there's a huge line of guys trying to do just that, guys, guys and girls, trying to do that, trying to be a film score artist that, I realized, man, I started way too late on this and that uh, my time is better spent doing other things.
0: Well, how did the relationship with Hank Williams III come to be? And did you think that you'd end up staying in Nashville after coming there to be a part of his band?
1: Well, that started, it started because we had a mutual friend, a gal named Maureen Herman, who had played bass, Babes and Toyland. She was living in Nashville and she knew him. And she said, you know, he he uh, goes through guitar players a lot, and I know he's a Jesus Lizard fan. And the Jesus Lizard had just sort of broken up the first time in 99. And he said, do you want to come down and you want to talk to him about it? And, see? and I said, oh, sure. So we talked, and he sent me a tape, and I learned some songs and came down and started doing it. Um, I had been through, to be honest, I had been through Nashville before on tour and didn't much care for it. Um But this time around, I had more time to sniff around and find different neighborhoods and different things, and I grew to like it. And, uh, well, it's a whole different city now. I mean, I've been here 20 years, and uh, it's a different world. I mean, it's grown so much, and there's entire neighborhoods now that didn't exist 20 years ago and all kinds of things. And the music scene, I mean, look at Three of the biggest bands in the world, like Jack White and His Thing and Black Keys and uh, Kings of Lamb, they all live here in Nashville. Um, so it's become a real music hub. I mean, it always was for country music, but now it's for everything, really. So I was, uh, I've had pretty good luck in picking places to move to right before they explode. Like before this, it was Chicago, right, in the 90s. That was a pretty good place to be. And then Austin in the 80s. It's good. I don't know where I'll go next. Maybe I'll retire in Reykjavik, Iceland. No, I think that's past its peak. How about I think Winnipeg? I hear I hear Winnipeg's an artsy town.
0: There, there's a lot of cool punk bands out of Winnipeg. That that is true.
1: Calgary, uh, maybe Calgary. I, I I feel like as the world's heating up, I want to get further away from the equator. So uh, I, I I could see. Um, is, tell me, is the Republic still there?
0: Oh, the Republic closed down a few years ago, and I'm going to tell okay. you right now. Your performances at the Republic are still legendary. They still get talked about on a daily basis in this city. It's still considered one of the greatest shows that has ever happened in, in the city of Calgary. So, <laughs>
1: Well, bless your heart. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, after that, you then met Mike Pat. Whose idea uh-huh. was it to start sending ideas to each other? Or did it just kind of happen organically?
1: Well, um, I met him in Nashville. I forgot what year it was, but my wife already knew him, but she, we'd never met. Um, but anyway, I met him at a Mr. Bungle show, and he was familiar. I was surprised. He was—he knew who I was, and he was familiar not just with the Jesus Lizard, but Dennis and Kimball Trio. And he said, hey, I got this new label. You know, you get something new going, let me know. I'd love to hear it. So I went home and thought about it, and I thought, "Ah, I wonder if he would want to do something with me. And I asked him, and he said, "Well, yeah, well, maybe why don't you send me some stuff? Let me check it out." And so I made it once again a simple home demo, just an acoustic guitar and a metronome, played a few things, and he liked it. Um, so, yeah, there seems to be this thing that uh, I, this thing going around that somehow the Tomahawk albums have been recorded just sending tapes back and forth, and that's not the case. Um, we sent I sent demo ideas through the mail back in those days. I mean, now you do it all with files, right, through Dropbox. But in those days, I would send first cassettes, and then as time went on, CDs of home demos, and that to everyone, and people could familiarize themselves with the material. But then we'd get together and work out the arrangements, and and we recorded together and mixed it and all that, like a band. Um, So it was, you know, it started off long distance, but it was always organic when we recorded and when we'd rehearse and go on tour.
0: Whose idea was it to get Thunderbird to produce the album, someone who, to most of the time, would only have known through country music?
1: I guess it was mine. I'd met him through um, Hank 3, and he was a good guy. He was an interesting fellow. Um, and I think that first album sounds really good um, as a result. Uh-huh. But then we moved up a notch. Not really. Not, I don't mean, like, artistically or anything, but then... Um, We, Because of the success of the first album, we expanded a bit, had a bigger budget, and we recorded it in L.A. with Joe Barisi, that second one, Mitt Gas, and and that uh, um, Joe is a crazy good producer. We can't afford him anymore.
0: (laughs) Speaking of Mitt Gas, it's one of the most underrated albums of the 2000s, if not all time. Did you want to make sure that it had a very different approach and style than the first album did? No,
1: um, it just grew. It just grew. It was an organic growth as we were more comfortable playing together. Um, we, you flex your muscles, so to speak, and find new possibilities as far as what you're, what you're good at. You know, you start off with one set of ideas and then they, over time you're like, but wait, it, we, it feels like it wants to do this. So you, you go with the flow of whatever the, the new thing is, the new feel or the new sound. Um, With that, and in fact, on that album, some of that material we had played live before we recorded it. I have bootlegs somewhere of that because when we did that first tour, we didn't have enough material to play just from the first album, right? Just to play a a headline shows, so we had to have more material. And we did a couple covers too at that time. I think of Roxy Music, "Every Dream Home a Heartache," and Monta Hoople, uh, "Violence." Um, So. We had we had worn some of those songs in by that time.
0: Speaking of touring, can you take us through that first Tool tour, which I loved that you were on, but it was at that particular time when Tool fans were being height annoying, and I can say that as a guy with a Tool license plate. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, really? Um, you know, anytime you're opening for a bigger band on their tour, playing those kind of bigger sort of arenas and sheds and that you're you're taking a chance on the one hand yeah you'll you'll make a few new fans and maybe you'll make a few believers out of it but you're also you're going to take some abuse um people can be quite rude to opening bands it's a i think in general north american audiences and maybe european ones as well are kind of spoiled in that regard um You know, like if, to me, if you're paying money to see a show and there's only, there's two bands, yeah, of course you're there to see the headliner, but you know, Hey, if you don't want to see the opener, then don't go early, you know, um, be, try to be polite We're you know, the opening band is there because the headliners asked them to be there and they're, you know, playing a short set and not getting probably as much money as you might think they are. So don't be so rough, you know, and, um. So we were tolerated most places, but in some places they clearly didn't like us, and I, I'm used to that. Um, I'm not used to it, used to it. But it's happened before on tours like we, where you know, if you're opening for someone, we've done tours with Rage Against the Machine, with Jesus Lizard, and Sign of Youth, Ministry. It's just not easy opening for other people. Dennis and Kimball Trio, you know, we did a few weeks opening for Morphine, and it was the same thing, even though you know, we're doing this sort of loungy thing and they've got a sax and all this, people were still, could be fucking rude. And, and then we played some shows like in, in Latin America and then we played a tool show on the border in El Paso. Um, and people were just so happy to be there and just, they loved us. And we've, we've been opening slots for bands you know, in South America, where they're not—they're not, they're not going to boo the show. They're not going to boo some opening band or be rowdy or or be disrespectful. No, they're—they're they're there for the show and they're going to support it. And so, I—I um, I was just glad to see people aren't so spoiled there, and partisan in their thinking.
0: When you were gathering the Native American compositions for Anonymous, did you wonder why this style of music wasn't as attributed to rock as something like the blues, when both have very similar bases? to form rock music from?
1: Um, I think that, no, I didn't because it soon became apparent that with the diversity of the native stuff, the North American stuff, um, even though some of the m- melodic figures can be similar, you know, based upon like a pentatonic thing, um, rhythmically, it, it was, it's quite different from the more African derived blues forms, which a lot of rock is, comes from. Um, so rhythmically, I thought that there was a, it was just different it was for a different type of dancing and a different type of feel, and I could easily see why it never caught on in a mass popularity way. Um, it's funny when we did that album i you know we did it because it was interesting the fact we had to, we had already had the name tomahawk, which nowadays I kind of question it because um, now you know it's easy to be. Accused of what? Misappropriation and things like that. But you know, we when we did that album, I even did an interview with uh, a gentleman from the Ojibwa, like tribal paper, and he really liked the album. And him said him and his friends they were all down with it. Um, so I, I felt good about that. But <laughs> it was easily the lowest selling, and. and we maybe only have ever played one or two of those songs live. You know, you can't force people to like something, but you know, we, were, we, I thought we did a pretty good job of a being respectful to the originals and yet also using it as a springboard to take it somewhere else. Um, we weren't trying to be necessary an authentic recreation. Why would we do that? We're a four piece rock band. Um, so that one, you know, I think it's an interesting album. It was maybe ambitious certainly different from anything else that we've done or that i saw done that year but then we followed it up with odd fellows which is very much a straightforward rock album
0: well what can we expect from the new tomahawk album
1: um the big bad rock songs um you know i like to think it's sort of well we're working on it right now and we're actually in the process just about to start mixing and i'm very excited about it there's It's more like, it's almost like a summation of everything we've done. There's some of the bigger, more grandiose sounding things. There's things that are very busy and almost proggy. And then there's other things that are more just flat out four on the floor hard rock. Um, Patton, you know, he's the man of a thousand voices. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he's singing, sometimes he's screaming, sometimes he's whispering. Um, The, you know, great ensemble playing, the rhythm section Trevor Dunn and John Stanier. Awesome. Uh, there's some little keyboards and guitars, a lot of it, slabs of it. So you'll see. I think it'll be out early next year.
0: So so you are probably going to push it till next year now?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, we've, yeah, there's no point. Um, plus, you know, we're not done yet. So, uh, we're shooting for early next year.
0: Well, if you had the choice to just play jazz from now on, would you take it? Or do you still get the no. rush from noise and heavy music?
1: Um, I'm not good enough <laughs> to just play jazz. <laughs> That's a few people bullshit.
0: <laughs> I disagree no, with that I mean,
1: completely. It's, it, no, I, uh, trust me. Um, you know, during the quarantine period, I was stuck at home and I did a lot of practicing and writing and I would do a lot of jazz practicing, playing along with, uh, you know the jazz, jazz recordings, abracad play-alongs that are available. Um, I, I'm I can do a passable impersonation of a uh, postmodern bop guitar player, but that's it. I am not the real thing. I don't feel authentic when I'm doing it. Um, I feel like when I play rock or original rock, hard rock, modern rock, something. Abrasive and edgy and dissonant and angular and all those things. I feel like I own that. That's what that's what I'm good at. That's what I've always kind of done. And I keep I should just keep trying to find new ways of doing that because I feel like that's my thing. And it's okay to experiment and play other things. You know, I played a little sort of cow punk and country with Hank. Three. I've done the Dennis and Campbell experimental lounge jazz thing. I think it's okay to do that, do that other stuff, but it's not, never, it would never be my main thing. And there are people out there, jazz people, full-time jazz people, that who have done nothing else but that their whole lives, who are barely making it. And I feel like it would be a disservice to them for someone like me to come along and try to muscle in on what is already a very limited territory.
0: I want to get political for a moment. You were never involved God. in outright political bands, but the essence and aura were always there. Why do you think that the okay. bands that you were in never just went fully in like some of your contemporaries?
1: You mean have a message like in every song and put it out there?
0: Or even just like a few songs here and there. It just seems like a lot of right. your contemporaries did that, and there was always that aura about every single band that you're in, but you didn't like hit it over the head.
1: Right. Um, because I don't think there was ever any obvious, we never talked about doing it. We all, we're all pretty much on the same page. Like these days, it's hard not to be political, right? I mean, whatever, especially in, a, in the United States, it's crazy here. It's fucking crazy town with this. This is the, in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like it. The worst president ever. We all, everyone in our band, we all hate Donald Trump. We hate this right wing Republican born-again Christian whatever mentality that's trying to, well, that's trying to ruin the country and tr- in the name of what? I don't know. Um, so we're all united on that. But, and, and, you know, and we talk about it with ourselves, with our friends, co-workers, um, on, in social media, whatever. But as far as including that in, in artwork, I've always been a little hesitant to make it in put it in a piece of music or whether it be film or anything, because once you've done that, it's dated forever. And you are forever bound to that period. And when I think of songs where they've done that, I usually don't like them that much. For just today, the song that went through my mind was that old hippie, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, Ohio. Teen soldiers and Nixon come and we're fine. And it's like... Ugh can't listen to it. whereas you know there was always a tradition of that in the early punk rock whether it was mdc or how about your guys snefu snfu snfu all right all right so i guess that would be it I, personally i've always been a little hesitant because it immediately dates you and um sometimes i think I, it, it's a tough call because sometimes i feel like when some people do it I feel like they're pandering and they're trying to appeal to a larger audience by pushing buttons of correctness. And then on the other hand, when I think of different things that I like to listen to, let's, for example, whether it's a composer or a band, if I come, if I like what I, if I enjoy listening to it, but I find out later that. They were whatever, you know, whatever not cool, whether it was being you know terrible things, like whether they're racist or anti-Semitic or anti-female or abusive and all this. It does, in some ways, it does temper my enjoyment of them, right? Um, but I'm not going to stop listening to something completely just because I disagree with how these persons have or have li- or or in the past with their life an example would be the composer for instance Wagner German composer he was what everyone thinks they think he was Hitler's favorite I think Sibelius was but um you know and some of his I think um look biographies you know yeah he was I think he was anti-semitic but I think a lot of people were then and it was a lot more open than um but you know, orchestras still play it. They still play some of that stuff, and some of it is beautiful. The more quiet things, the stuff that people don't have never heard. So it's a tough call. Um, some things, though, when I find out things about people or whatever, I can't listen. It makes me not want to ever hear them. Um, and I, I, there's too many examples. I don't want to dig too much because I, I don't have any personal acts to grind at anyone right now. Um, there's some. For instance, let's take someone like Ted Nugent. I grew up in the Detroit area. So when I was a kid, Ted Nugent was always around. Um, And some of those early, early things like uh, Journey to the Center of the Mind, his version of Baby, Please Don't Go, and the other ones, I actually like uh, Motor City Madhouse. I like it. It's a guilty pleasure. I, I don't like the later stuff, and I don't like him. I find him horrible you know I'm not into guns I don't like the fact that you know a draft dodger can wrap himself in the flag and be captain America um, but that's not going to stop me from listening to those early records and liking it you know what I mean mm-hmm. and I tend to think there's uh, there's people like that out there it's like a filmmaker who you come to find out later when reading interviews with cast and crew that they're abusive or totalitarian or authoritarian or all those things right and let's face it a lot of directors are. Or were, and they get away because their art stands up. They'll say, "Well, it was all in the name of our, our art." So, it's a tough call.
0: Well, what do you think of what's going on in the streets right now? Do you see real change coming from this?
1: Yes and no. Um, I, I, I'm all for it. I'm all for the Black Lives Matter thing. Uh, it does seem like in America, the police have killed a lot of black people for reasons that, for no reason no good reason they have no reason to do that whether they're doing something whether they're guilty of something or not you you arrest people and they go to court you don't kill them you don't kneel on their necks you don't whatever and they've been it keeps happening and it's about you know it, it was just the kettle has boiled over it does that every so often when i was a kid i'm 61 years old when i was a kid i grew up in the 60s and in the detroit area um, when I, 1969, I was 10 years old. i had already seen the riots, 67. There, there was protests against the war all the time. Um, it seemed like the world was coming to an end, but this is so, it, and then nothing happened for a long time. Um, things kind of settled down and then we went through the seventies and eighties and very selfish sort of thing. And then, you know, everything just kind of went back to how it was. So maybe this time, there will be some change. There will be some laws. There will be some reforms. Um, it, has, it has to happen sooner or later. It seems like there's more and people getting on board all the time, and it has more attention now. Also, there's social media where people can discuss this stuff more openly. It's not just the major news networks, obviously. And the fact that um, this is happening at a time when this coronavirus, when a lot of people are idle and have time to think about these things and then put that thought into action, I think that's kind of unprecedented. So um, we'll see what what happens. It's a very interesting time. Um, it's a very unfortunate time for, for a lot of people as well. Um, I've been very lucky. I haven't been out of work. I, I work in a library, a public library. So I've been, you know, the hours kind of were cut back, but I was still doing work from home and things, and I was able to stay home and write songs and work on things and kind of make opportunities out of time. I was giving online lessons. Um, so I'm kind of a try to, uh, you know, make, uh, what's the expression? I've had a long day. Um, make a, make lemonade out of lemons, <laughs> out of the lemon. So, um But I've been very fortunate. And that's another thing. A lot of people are angry and frustrated over the economic thing, and that's taking a slide. So who knows? We'll see what happens after this election.
0: Do you think that we're doing enough to try and stop a second term of this guy?
1: There's only so much you can do, and I think so. Uh, I mean, other than everyone spending every waking moment doing something to campaigning or protesting, you can only do so much, Um, and you need to have some time for yourself. Otherwise, you're, to me, I, I question why I'm even doing it. You know, anything, if you're working so hard where you don't have a minute to yourself, and your sanity is, becomes questionable. So,
0: Well, getting a bit lighter for a moment, what brought you to the literary yeah. game in your current work with the Nashville Library?
1: I have always been a book nerd. I've always been a reader. Uh, I, was, I was the kind of guy that would enter poetry contests when I was in grade school, I was a guy that always had a book under my arm. Um, and I, I worked in a library when I was in college. I had friends who got me in. And um, and so um, it just seemed like a natural step. And um, I, I wasn't traveling as much. I'd gotten older. I don't I don't need to or really even like to travel as much as I used to. I did so much of it in the 90s and aughts that, uh, hey, you know, it just seemed like a good thing to do. And I like the institutions of the public library, the idea that you've got this thing paid for by taxes its for the people and people can go there. And it's not just for checking out books anymore. Obviously, it's a a community center. There's computers for people to use. There's meeting spaces for people to use. There's uh, programming and adult education and children's Education courses going on, and there's DVDs and all that good stuff. And um, you know, it's a decent job. I like my coworkers are smart and funny and all that good stuff. And you know, okay, job with benefits.
0: <laughs> favorite book and a new book that you think everybody out there should go check out.
1: Uh, I can't pick one favorite book. <laughs> um, in recent years. Um, I'll, I'll just throw some author names out there and it's probably, you know, if you're the kind of person who listens to these kind of podcasts, it, you, you probably know these authors, whether it's, um, Roberto Bolaño or, um, Murakami or, uh, the new one, Otessa Moshfeg. Um, she's great. Karen Russell, another great, um, new writer, um, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, when I was younger, I liked Jersey Kaczynski, but there's another one. He turned out to be such a jerk that it's just sad for me to look at that stuff now. Um, but that's a good, I think, cross-section right there.
0: Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up other than the new Tomahawk album?
1: Well, you'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> there might be something else, or...
0: that's what i I want to hear (laughs) um i'll read between the lines all
1: day yes you can feel free um there may be maybe not you know it's like picking plucking petals off of a fire. they love us they love us not they love us they love us (laughs) not um i'm losing my mind here No, we'll see um there might be something who knows uh like I said, we all, everybody stays in touch and we all, you know, write all the time and share ideas. So it's not impossible.
0: Well, Dwayne, anytime I get to have a member of the Jesus Lizard on here, it's an actual honor and getting to speak with the man behind the sound. That's no exception. It's a true, true well, honor. Thank you. You have always been one of well, my favorite you. guitar players and you deserve to not only be on every top guitar list, but I hope one day things like the rock hall come knocking at your door because you've been in more influential than a lot of people that are already in it. So thank you again for sitting down with me today. And I look forward to the next time that I get to see you on stage.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. And likewise, uh, I appreciate it. And I look forward to someday getting back up, backing up to old Winnipeg. Wait, wait a minute, Calgary. Oh, God, <laughs> No, I want to do an all. I want to do a cross Canada tour. Oh, Western I would, Canada. I want to do Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, Kamloops, Vancouver, um, Victoria, Prince Rupert Island.
0: I've I've seen some crazy shows in Kamloops, so I can I can only imagine <laughs> what a Jesus Lizard show would be like going there now.
1: I want to do a I want to go to uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. Go back to Mont-Ton, um, Quebec City montreal all those awesome i did it. did i tell you my grandfather on my dad's side uh raymond Dennison, is from canada
0: no you didn't
1: no i'm actually well my grandfather came over from him and his two brothers moved from somewhere in ontario to michigan to get those henry ford five dollar a day <laughs> factory jobs and that's what they did, and they put roots down. So um, and he fought in World War One, in fact, for Canada, my grandfather and his two brothers.
0: Did you so, ever get to ask him if he regretted moving to the States, or did he think that it was, like, the the best decision that he could have made?
1: Um, I never, ever asked him those kind of questions. I never, I never, Um, it just, no, I wouldn't have. I, I never would have thought of anything like that. I, I And I don't think he would have even... He would have probably hit me or something. He's like, well, I'm I'm here, aren't I? I got I had a job. I raised a family. I'm still here, aren't I? That's probably what he would have said.
0: Uh well Dwayne, thank you again so much. It really means a lot.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. And uh who knows, maybe I'll see you somewhere down the line.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope we're all gonna read between the lines after that one. And damn am I excited to see Dwayne hit the road once again. And get some new music out there. This concludes our broadcast day.